to now for Cover to Cover with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is March 15th, 2011, the Ides of March. (laughs) Hell and high water indeed. I want to read you something about human folly. Not the apocalyptic sort that's been happening all week, but the old-fashioned sort of human frailty. Something on a scale I can handle. (laughs) Something I can laugh at. I want to go back more than a hundred years. Let's see. 1905. George Bernard Shaw. He wrote about the death of an old revolutionary hero. Uh, A left-wing type that all of us are (laughs) familiar with. Hmm. You know, the type... um, one of the all-or-nothing diehards. Uh, yes, uh, as Shaw himself once wrote, we should have had socialism long ago, but for the socialists. I want to read you some excerpts from uh, this essay written in the early years of the 20th century in a collection of the tales of George Bernard Shaw, yes, death of an old revolutionary hero. See if any of this sounds familiar, folks. So old Joe Budget is dead at last. The socialist movement has seldom mourned a more typical thorough-goer than dear old Joe We all knew him, for he quarreled with every one of us at one time or another. Yet is there one who is not sorry to lose him? Those who witnessed that simple funeral last Thursday morning, when the remains of that poor workman in a cheap pine coffin were borne through the pelting sleet to their last resting place, on the shoulders... Of some of us, yes, uh, (laughs) yes, uh, uh, we wanted to pay our last sad duty to this veteran of the Internationale. Uh, What manner of a man was this? Uh, He received a tribute from persons of such diverse views, uh, so far removed from the pallbearers, yes, different social position, 
Joe Budget was a heavily built man. Even at 90, his age when he died, he was no lightweight. My heart was heavy as I helped shoulder the coffin. But I confess that poor Joe seemed heavier still by the time we reached the grave, for we were not trained to the work. <laughs> Blatchford, after the manner of highly sympathetic literary geniuses with a strong susceptibility to incongruous humor, was so convulsed with suppressed laughter that his quiverings rattled Joe's bones over the stones without contributing anything to their support. Had it not been for Webb and myself, Fabian's doing the practical work as usual, Joe would never have got to his grave. Lord Lansdowne was evidently uh, taken aback to find that there was to be no religious service, Joe having been an uncompromising atheist. But he spoke very feelingly at the grave side. He said, It was part of the tragedy of this man's career that in all the seventy years of active political life during which he agitated ceaselessly on behalf of his own class, he never found, either in the Liberal Party or in the irregular groups which pretended to represent labor and socialism, that incorruptible spirit, that stainless purity of principle and that absolute integrity, aloof from all compromising alliances, which his honest character demanded as the sole and sufficient claim to his support. He regarded the Conservative Party as an open enemy, but he rightly preferred an open enemy to a false or half-hearted friend. <laughs> now, it was at this point that the accident of which so much has been made befell Blatchford. Uh, the account of it in the evening papers was exaggerated. It is true that the editor of the Clarion broke down and covered his face with his handkerchief. It is also true that in an attempt to hurry away from the gravesite with his eyes full of tears, he tripped over the sexton's spade, but he did not fall into the grave. The capitalist press naturally strives to belittle and make ridiculous any political opponent. But I cannot help thinking that it might have shown better taste than to choose a funeral for a display of its cockney facetiousness. Now, a good deal of misunderstanding has been caused by the report that the reason I did not speak was that Mrs. Budget said it would be a mockery for a man who had done his best to kill her husband to make a speech over his grave. She said that Joe would turn in his coffin at the sound of my voice. Now, it is quite true that Mrs. Budget actually did say this, and that I took no part in the speaking in deference to her wishes. But the three labor papers who have rebuked Mrs. Budget for making her husband's funeral the occasion of an attack on the Fabian Society are quite wrong in their interpretation of her remarks, she was not 
thinking of the Fabian Society at all. The truth is, I once did actually try to kill Joe. Has it happened a good many years ago? <laughs> he forgave me handsomely then, though Mrs. Budget could never forget it. I may as well do penance now by describing the affair exactly as it happened. I was quite a young socialist then. I heard one day in spring that old budget was passing away whilst the earth was germinating all around and a lump came into my throat. Uh, I got used to the news later on because Joe began dying when he was 75. Never got out of his bed from that time forth except to address a meeting or attend a socialist congress. But as I have just said, I was a young hand then. I had an intense desire to see the old revolutionary uh, before he returned to that dust uh, to which he belonged. Now, the end of it was I found myself a couple of days later at his cottage asking Mrs. Budget whether he was strong enough to see me. She said he was not as his heart was in such a state that the least excitement or any sudden noise might be fatal. Ah, when she saw how disappointed I was, she added he was so mortal dull that a little company would perhaps do him good. If I would promise not to talk to him, be careful not to make any noise, she would let me up for a while. Ah, I promised eagerly, and uh, this is perhaps best place for me to stop and say that Mrs. Budget struck me even then as being extraordinarily devoted to Joe. In fact, I don't think she ventured to regard him as anything so familiar as a husband. She had known both toil and sorrow, for she had had to keep Joe to bring up a family of five by her own exertions. As a boy, Joe had been apprenticed uh, uh, to a stonemason. He had served his time and learned the trade. Uh, but he heard a speech from one of the great orators. Yes, uh, Orator Hunt, the famous man in the white hat. And he threw up, he threw up his apprenticeship and devoted his life to the cause of the people, entrusting all business affairs to his faithful wife. She never let him know want. The consequence was that Mrs. Budget had to work pretty hard as a laundress. She did not mind hard work. What weighed on her was the curious fatality <laughs> that the five children all turned against Joe. They became strong chapel goers and money makers. They made their quarrel with Joe an excuse for doing very little for her because they said they did not want their earnings wasted in encouraging him. <laughs> there had been sorrow and strife enough in that little household. Joe was sitting up in bed when we entered. I was struck at once by the lion-like mane of white hair, the firmly closed mouth with its muscles developed by half a century of public speaking. The serene brow, clear ruddy complexion, keen bold eyes of a veteran. He gave my hand a strong hearty grip 
and said in tones that were still resonant. Uh, he had not then acquired the senile, whistling utterance that pierced the ears and hearts of the International Socialist Congress at Amsterdam. He said, do I at last see before me that old and tried friend of the working classes, George Bernard Shaw? How are you, George? Although I was not then old and had no other feeling for the working class than an intense desire to abolish them and replace them with sensible people, Joe's cordial manner set me at ease. He invited me to sit down. <sighs> I served my apprenticeship to the revolution, he said, in the struggle against the reform bill of 1832. Against it, I cried. I against it, he said, old as I am, my blood still boils when I think of the way in which a capitalist tailor named Place, one of the half-hearted radical vermin, worked that infamous conspiracy to enfranchise the middle classes and to deny the vote to the working man. I spoke against it on every platform in England. The Duke of Wellington himself said to me that he disapproved of revolutionists in general, but he wished there were a few more of my kidney. Ah, then came Chartism with its five points to fool the people, keep them from going to the real root of the matter by abolishing kings, priests, and private property. I showed up the leaders. I had the satisfaction of seeing them all go to prison, come out without a single follower left. Then there was um, Bright and Cobden trailing the red herring of free trade across the trail of the emancipation of the working classes. I exposed them and their silly lies about cheap bread. If I'd been listened to, no Englishman need ever have wanted bread again. Uh, next came the factory acts which recognized and regulated and legalized the accursed exploitation of the wives and children of the poor in the factory hells. Why, when I took the field against them, the very employers themselves said I was right. They bid me Godspeed. Then came a worse swindle than the reform bill of 1832. <laughs> Old Joe goes on for many paragraphs here. I have to skip over all of the, uh, what is it, compromises that he did not make. Uh, yes, let's see now. He uh, says, didn't I get this scar over my eye from a stone that hit me when I was speaking against those bills? But it became law for all of that. Anyway, finally... They brought in the Education Act to drive all our children into their prisons of schools, drill them into submission, teach them to be more efficient slaves to make profits for the bloodsuckers. I spoke against it until I lost my voice for a whole month. The people were with me too, heart and soul. It ended as all double-facedness ends in the compromise, but thanks. God, not that I believe in God, but I use the word in a manner of speaking. I never compromised. I never will. I left the International because it would not support me against the school bastilles. 
It was high time I did, for the Internationale was a rotten compromise itself. Half mere trade unionism, and the other half a little private game of a rare old dodger named Marx. Not Harry Marx, you know, but Karl. A compromise between a German and a Jew. He was neither one thing nor the other. And then came the Commune of Paris. Did nothing but get the people of Paris slaughtered like mad dogs. Because, as I pointed out at the time, it was too local. It stood for a city instead of for all the world. That put an end to everything for ten years. Then socialism came up again with all the old mistakes. Those half-hearted palliatives stooping to use the votes that the capitalists had bribed the people with. Pushing middle-class men and autocratic swells at the head of it. I soon saw through it all. Ah, all they wanted. Well, Morris, you know. Morris, all he wanted was our pennies to publish his poems. You know, some silly John Bull's earthly paradise tosh such as that. Uh, he wanted to publish in The Commonweal. Well, I turned the league against him. I took the common wheel from him. Then he showed his true nature by leaving us without the means to pay the rent. Nothing to publish the paper. Nothing came of that but another reform bill in 1885. I said, does it abolish the registration laws? Does it establish universal suffrage? No, they said. Well, then have nothing to do with it, I said. I spoke against it. I agitated as I had never agitated before. Ah, but the spirit of the workers was broken. They submitted to it like sheep. I took to my bed then. I never came out until the dark strike of 1889. <laughs> well, I said ambiguously, that roused you, did it? Could I lie there and see people led away by a renegade like John Burns? He exclaimed, what a degradation that was. <sighs> Freeborn men begging for sixpence an hour instead of insisting in a voice of thunder on the full product of their labor. That was what Burns pretended socialism came to. Sixpence an hour. I expected no more. I saw through him from the first. And uh, here, there's a, another page in which old Joe goes on to explain that he, uh, he did not, he, he did not compromise on any number of issues which might have moved the uh, working classes a few inches uh, towards something progressive. Uh, oh yes, all those German wire pullers, all those self-seeking humbugs, talkers and compromisers. None of them genuine right through. Okay, and then he talks about all the conspiracies with the Pope and on and on and on. Uh, Joe used his tongue and his pen, he said, uh, to organize socialist opposition, but he organized the genuine, real socialist opposition. Aha. And George Bernard Shaw asks him, You are working, then, for the conservatives? 
Young man, he answered, I have opposed the Tories all my life. But there's one thing I hate more than a Tory, and that's a traitor. Well, I said, are all the labor and socialist leaders traitors? Traitors, he said, what put such a thought into your head? There are hundreds of true men who ought to be leaders, and they will be when the people come to their senses. But the men that put themselves forward as leaders, those that organize strikes and win elections, they're all self-seekers and traitors, every man of them. Ha, 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 ha. Anyway, he goes on uh, at great length, uh, more and more of this. Uh, then he took up a, a sip of uh, a tonic from a cup his wife had brought him when he came in. Yes, the way a speaker does when he's getting hoarse. Uh, <laughs> his historical reminiscences had by this time come pretty well up to date. So... I thought he was all done, but suddenly he switched from history to moral exhortation. Look at me, he said, going on for eighty. Sound as a bell, except for my heart. Uh, he said, my complaints are brought on by my heart bleeding for the people, my overwork on the platform. That's because I am a teetotaler, young man. And why am I a teetotaler? Because the cause of the people has been drink to me, stimulant to me, courage and warmth to me. Have I ever taken money for my principles? Never. Exploiting classes have offered over and over to finance me, but I have never accepted a penny. Thoughtlessly, I remarked, except from your wife. For a moment he was completely taken aback. Then he said with indescribable majesty, Never, it is a foul lie, whoever told it you who lies in his black throat. Prove to me that my wife has ever accepted a farthing from any oppressor of the people, that she has ever possessed a coin that was not earned by her own honest toil, and I will never look on her face again. Well, I said that's not precisely what I mean. I perceived he had missed my point. Hmm, my wife is a crown of rubies to me, he said. But I have always kept her out of the rough and tumble of political strife. It has broken me, but at least I have shielded her from all that. Here he wiped away a tear. And when I think, he went on, that there are men who at this present moment are plotting to give the vote to middle-class women and deny it to my wife while well, I feel that I could rise from my bed and fight with my last breath against it. Hmm. I said, all or nothing, that's your principle. That's it, he responded, aglow, all or nothing. Well, I said, as it is certain that you won't get all, you are practically the propagandist of nothing, a nihilist, nihilist, in fact. I'm not ashamed of the word nihilist, he said. The nihilists are my brothers. <laughs> In order to change the subject, I said, Is it really true that your heart is so bad that a sudden noise would kill you? It is, he said proudly. You could snuff me out like a candle by knocking that cup over. Uh, anyway, at this point, George Bernard Shaw looks around and sees a grandfather clock ticking quietly in the distance. Uh... Ah, uh, rising, I said. Mr. Budget, I am not a nihilist. 
past, and it is perfectly clear to me that nothing will ever be done so long as you are about, so here goes, I pulled the grandfather clock right over. It fell with an appalling crash. Terrified at my own deed, I looked fearfully at the dying man. But Joe did not die. Instead, he sprang out of bed and hollered, What the bleepity bleep are you doing? I thought it best, on the whole, to drop from the window and make for the railway station. Next day, I sent him two pounds, all I could spare, to pay for repairing the clock. He sent it back to me with a letter of some thirty pages to say he could do without a clock, but not without his self-respect. Now, you see, that is why Mrs. Budget objected to my speaking at the funeral. Uh, now that advancing years have mellowed my character, I must confess that I was wrong, wrong in trying to kill Joe. One must live and let live. Joe bore no malice whatever for that incident. He used to refer to it with the utmost good humor, always ending up with the assurance that he did not take me seriously. He knew my real object was simply to give him a hearty laugh. His end was undoubtedly hastened by his efforts to turn the labor movement against the new bill for the enfranchisement of women, and he was proud to number a countess among his converts. He almost lost his temper with me because I said that I should support any bill that would make a start by giving a parliamentary vote or seat to even one woman, though the property qualification were a million sterling. All or nothing, he cried with a fervor worthy of a character in Ibsen's play brand. The governing classes... Keep the masses of people enslaved, he said, by taking advantage of their sloth, their stupidity, their ignorance, their poverty, their narrow-mindedness, their superstition, and their vices. <laughs> they cannot enslave a man like Joe by such means. He was energetic and clever. He was as well-read as most cabinet ministers. He was sufficiently fed, clothed, and housed by his wife. He was a universalist in his breadth of view. He was an atheist, and he had practically no vices. And yet the governing classes tied Joe up with the principles of absolute morality, tighter than they could tie a hooligan with a set of handcuffs. After all... The principles of absolute morality were made for this very purpose, so Joe was hardly to be blamed. That's the end of the essay by George Bernard Shaw, in which he tries, he tries to do a send-up of the sort of old revolutionary hero who went to his death without making a compromise, although <laughs> he pretty much... He pretty much um, mucked up everyone in his family to do it. Uh, I put this essay on my shelf next to a wonderful essay by Mark Twain, which is something along the same line, the American, the American spin on these uh, moralists. Yes, see, it was uh, Twain who said, yes, uh, he said, man is the only animal who has a moral sense and the only... Uh, the only animal who needs one. Uh, 
absolutism, rigidity. Is, is it possible that that's something like, uh, are you with us or against us? Are you with me or against me? You remember the, uh, the mind that produced that psychological set. Uh, <laughs> give a little, boys, yes, give a little. Once again, this has been Jennifer Stone reading to you from George Bernard Shaw's story of the death of an old revolutionary hero. A man who never compromised and who lived by his principles. Uh, and that was a hundred years ago. Be back on the air this time next week. Goddess willing. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Out of This is Michael Parenti thanking you for your donation to KPFA and urging you to pay your pledge as soon as possible. Money from donors like yourself is what keeps the station in operation and allows KPFA to bring you the kind of free speech alternative programming that features people who challenge the conventional corporate viewpoint. So please honor your commitment to KPFA and pay your pledge now. Thank you.